Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to World Spirituality, exploring the unity within all cultures and faith traditions with your host, Rev. Paul John Roach. Welcome to World Spirituality on the Unity Online Radio Network. I'm your host, Paul John Roach, coming to you from Fort Worth in Texas. And my honored guest today is coming all the way from Ireland, in Ireland, in the UK, and in many Commonwealth countries, Dervla Murphy is something of a national treasure. Uh, she's been a touring cyclist and author of, of adventure travel books for over 40 years. She is best known for her 1965 book, Full Tilt, which is about her journey on bicycle from Ireland to India, uh, which uh, she did solo an overland bicycle trip through Europe, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India. And she followed that up with some volunteer work helping Tibetan refugees in India and Nepal. She's traveled with a mule through Ethiopia, traveled in South America, Madagascar, Cameroon, Romania, Laos, and Siberia, just to name a few. She's also been politically active in, in different parts of her life. In 2005, she visited Cuba with her daughter and three granddaughters. So it's a joy to welcome Dervla Murphy to today's show. Welcome. Glad you're with us. Thank you very much. And I'm glad to be with you. It's <clears throat> certainly an honor. And um, I read the, the book Full Tilt recently uh, on the recommendation of a friend. And I was totally fascinated with it because I uh, went along this pretty much the same route, um, but later in 76 and certainly not on a bicycle. So I was amazed that a woman alone, um, and especially in 1963, which I think when you, when you did the trip, um, could do that and, and survive, basically, because it's pretty wild and woolly, wasn't it? Well, I think it was much easier to do it then than it would be to do it now. Well, absolutely, today, yeah, today is probably countries, Yes, those countries were not in such a dismal state as they are at the moment. Now, you travelled, uh, we could say, without luxuries, right? You, you basically had a, a pannier of uh, uh, supplies or clothes or whatever, and you uh, relied a lot on... Um, people on the on the journey right You're offering you shelter etc indeed yes yes and uh, wonderful hospitality all through amazing actually and you know it makes me very angry nowadays when i hear about people 
describing uh, Afghanistan as one of the, always one of the poorest countries in the world. Because certainly when I was traveling there and staying in the villages and traveling through the countryside, it was not a poor country. It was an undeveloped country, which is something else and something very different. Because I didn't see any people in the villages or the towns who were hungry and badly dressed and ill, ill-sheltered. Uh, unlike when I crossed the Khyber Pass and got to Pakistan and India, that's when I did see real poverty. But in Afghanistan at that date, there was not real poverty, or indeed any visible poverty. And they had a flourishing trade in dried and fresh fruits with both Iran and Pakistan. And they did not have a flourishing opium trade that was to come. So, and also in uh, Kabul University, I went, spent a day there actually, and have photographs here of the women and men, the young men and young women, students sitting side by side, nobody nailed, everybody sharing desks and taking notes and leading a normal student life. And the notion that, you know, no women were educated until the outsiders arrived to bring them schools is just, well, it's just very nasty propaganda, actually. You called yourself Afghanatical, didn't you? Because you sort of fell yes. in love with the... Uh with the Afghan people and, and with the landscape, everything really, the, there was a nobility about them that you liked. And, and, and a wonderful generosity. And uh, Well, it was just a beautiful. And then on the, well, of course there were, there were rumors that trouble was on the way, you know, and trouble was obviously going to come from two directions, from Russia and from America. And, you know, some of the students with whom I talked in Cornwall then, who would now be elderly men, they were aware that the trouble was coming from both directions. And they would have arguments between themselves. I mean, there would be two sides. There would be those who thought it would be a good idea to expand along socialist lines following Russian example, avoiding the Stalinist bit. And then there were those who longed to follow the American example. So soon afterwards then, all that peacefulness and prosperity was gone. The Russians came and then the Americans came. And now, well, now I wouldn't want to go back. I really wouldn't. Right. I, I don't even like thinking about how Afghanistan is now. Right. One thing about the Afghans, though, is they are survivors, aren't they? They've um, they've been ruled by many other people temporarily, you know, and even the British, I I think, went in there, right, in the 19th century and, and, and got a bit messed up, actually, the first time, didn't they? And uh, so, so they're one of the few nations that have bested the British in, in the colonial era. 
Um, that so, yeah, true? There's, yes. there's, a, there's a power to that country. Those, the, there's a resilience to those people, I think. Absolutely. There is. And of course, I think the best book, um, the British misadventures, let's say, in Afghanistan is, is um, the, re the Return of the King by William Dalrymple. Oh, yes. Uh -huh. I mean, that is a really magnificent book. But I'm sure you know his work. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm fascinated with that era of history um, for all its, uh, you know, domination, world domination. It's still a fascinating period of history. Um, yeah. yeah. And uh, I've read a lot of uh, uh, Jan Morris, too, uh, wrote oh, a trilogy yeah. about uh, Pax Britannica. And that, that was an interesting trilogy also. Very. But, but you know the Russians came in and uh, and again only survived for ten years, right? They they what? also were bested by uh, by the Afghans and, yes. and the Americans are not much doing much better either. So uh, yeah, this they're they're, a, they're an interesting culture. One one thing that happened to you, and I think I would have just gone home if it had happened to me. Um, in, in a bus, I think it was you 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 received a um, a, a rifle butt to to your uh, to your ribs, right? And uh, that broke some of them, and uh, made made you uh, you know had to hold, hold up for a while. That was incredible to me that you 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 marshaled your resources and kept going. That that's that that's strength indeed. Well, I don't think broken ribs or anything can possible. Really. <laughs> no, I mean seriously. <laughs> right, right. Well, obviously not. You know, you're a, you're obviously a tough person, and done all these adventures around the world uh, that many people would not consider doing. They wouldn't even dream about it, let alone do it. So, obviously, you you built up some strong stuff, I would say. I don't know. Well, I suppose maybe maybe tougher than the present generation because. Youngsters now, everything seems to be so so easy. It's so, so they they seem to be so afraid, so timid somehow. You know, right. uh, too too much protection of the children in playgrounds. And it's certainly a changed world, isn't it, from the world I grew up in. Um... You know, when we used to walk anywhere we wanted and exactly. go on adventures on our bikes, you know, now you can't let your kids out of sight and everything. That's that's exactly what I mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very sad. So you, your early life, though, was quite difficult. I know you had to look after your parents and what, and you wrote an uh, autobiography about that called Wheels Within, Within Wheels. And it wasn't until you were in your early 30s, right, that you had the freedom to travel like you exactly. did um, yeah yes. so, so that was that was quite an experience i'm sure going through all that uh, made you a resilient person dealing with uh, with illness and uh, oh that's true yes yes it was it was it was pretty grueling but it was a good preparation for what came later yes you're right one thing but that tell, tell me tell me where you live uh, well, I live in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, but I grew up in Cardiff in Wales. Really? Um, yes. So I, yeah, I, I'm I'm Welsh uh, originally, and um, 
But I, I left for India and, and hitchhiked and down to India in the 76. And mm -hmm. um, so it was a, a different experience then because I think it become more of the hippie trail and whatnot. And there were a lot, lot of uh, people catering to that, you know, to those people. Uh, but it was yes, I can I can remember that starting because in 1963, when I went first to India, there was absolutely no trace of it, and in 1968, that was only five years later, I spent uh, three months in uh, eastern Turkey, where I I was then expecting my daughter, and uh, I was just sort of exploring eastern Turkey from from um, cars in the in the you know northeast down to the border of Iraq in Kurdistan. And the hippie trail then had started during those five years. Oh, so I could I could place its beginning. Yes, interesting. And Very it good. did it you know in the places where my uh, my journey crossed tracks with the trick, the, the hippie tree. We, you could notice the difference in the local people's attitude to foreigners yes. as compared to their, you know, completely open and welcoming attitude to me. And there was just one foreigner passing through the village on a bike. It was quite remarkable and, and sad, really. Yeah, I, I remember. Yeah, I remember going to you know uh, Kathmandu back in in those days, and then revisiting it, you know, thirty some years later, and a similar thing, you know, just it's become a huge city and different energy, different att attitude. Exactly. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, and then happened so fast, you know, because uh, once. Well, there's just too many tourists on the planet. I think you know what one of That's the. Right. Uh, one of the good things about COVID, perhaps, if there are good things, I guess there's good things in everything, is that it stopped us traveling so much and maybe, oh, yes. uh, you know, given a yes. breather to, you know, over much, too many tourists wandering around everything. Uh, you see more tourists if you go to a city than you see the people who live there. So, yeah. Yes, it's been, unfortunately, it's been a very destructive industry. The tourist industry, yeah, but it is—it is definitely uh, being brought to something of a halt now. Yes. One question I, I have. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. No. Go ahead. I was going to say one question I have is through the book Full Tilt, you always seem to have the good fortune of meeting up with um, high officials, even uh, royalty. Uh, you know, the local chieftains and whatnot. <laughs> they seem to take you under their wing and you end up, uh, you know, being looked after and, and have sumptuous meals with them. Well, how, did you get, how did you get so fortunate there? I think that's just good luck. Yeah. Yes. Um, well, also, well, that's an interesting question, actually, because I never thought of that before. But it ties in, I think, directly ties in with what we've just said. There were so many tourists that lately or since then. And I mean, I only met three foreigners between Istanbul and Kobul. That's amazing. Three in those thousands of miles. Yes. 
So I think that's why, you know, that's, I suddenly realised because of your question, that's why people were so kind to me. Because I was, I was something exceptional. Absolutely, that makes sense. Um, some of the most fascinating parts of the book for me were when you were traveling in the, you know, the Karakoram Mountains or the Hindu Kush oh. up there in the mountains, you know, oh, Swat, Swat and Gilgit and yes. uh, those places, Kulu. Um, the, 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 and the descriptions you give of the, the, the landscape, you know, and then the peoples of the area, uh, just magnificent. And I know back then there, were, there wasn't the Karakoram Highway or anything like that. And no. Some of the stories no. you tell of, you know, trying to cycle across these the dirt roads, basically. It sounds impossible, yes. but again, you did it. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, it was perfectly possible what all the locals did. <laughs> <laughs> but it is a truly um, a remarkable uh, landscape, isn't it? There's, there's something very spiritual about it. Isn't me. it? Yes. Very. Yeah. And part of it, maybe, is the purity of the air, the, the high altitude. Because um. I do love mountains. Right. You know, I think, and, and I actually, I physically, I feel better at, you know, oh, let's say over 8,000 feet. <laughs> where other people feel, you know, less energetic. I, the right. higher I go, the more energetic I seem to feel in those days. And now, of course, ironically, I have uh, a long complaint, which means I can't even walk very far. But anyway, that's what old age does, so nothing to be said about that. Well, fortunately, you, you took full advantage of the years where you were active and uh, certainly didn't sit at home twiddling your thumbs, did you? You were highly active in, in for, for, for most of that time. So that oh, yes. look back on that and say that was that was a wonderful thing to do. So not only that, you dragged your uh, daughter. <laughs> maybe it's not dragged. Maybe you took your daughter. <laughs> Rachel to some of these places too when she was a child, right? That's right. She had her first journey outside Europe in Cook in southern India. When she was when she had her fifth birthday there. And a lovely, lovely area. And I think by all accounts, even though much of India has been overdeveloped. I gather that many parts of Coorg remain more or less as we experienced them. So I comfort myself with that thought. Right. And you're right, India has totally transformed itself. When I went back about five years ago, I couldn't believe all the, the buildings and the highways and what yes. has become a very industrialized uh, nation. And of course, the you know, they're vying to be the, the, the third or fourth largest economy now. So yes. everything's uh, transforma transforming itself. Yes. But it's that the, India, the old India is still there, you know. It's, it's sort of mixed in together, the, 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 the wonders of India with all the smells and the, or the street oh, lights. It's still, yes. still there. Yeah. Yes. Yes, but unfortunately, I mean, the... You know, what I think of is the, the sort of curse of religious 
uh, extremism has hit India, and I never thought it would. I always thought India was a country that, with its basic tradition of Hinduism, but so many other religions included, would right, be proof right. against this sort of religious fanaticism. But it has been so encouraged by Modi, the present Prime Minister leader, that uh, things are getting very nasty there now. In a way, right. I never thought would be, you know, would be likely. But this is, uh, it's part of what's happening worldwide, really. And right, there seems to be a lot of d- division right now, doesn't there, between yeah. the different sides, whether it's political or, or religious. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, which is unfortunate. It is indeed. So you've always had a... Um, uh, commitment to helping people um you know i said earlier that you to become involved with uh, tibetan refugees after you got to india for for, a few, for several months and and you've done other things in that regard so you you you've seen yourself as a, a champion of of people in some ways right well i wouldn't say a champion um no i would say a support right okay of, of, yeah but, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have what it takes to be a champion, but a supporter of, and, you know, of the most unfortunate people. And I've always been eager to, to point out how, well, just how unjust the world, the capitalist world is. I read in your Wikipedia uh, entry that uh, you you are anti-globalization, critical of NATO, the World Bank, the IMF, and and the World Trade Organization. Absolutely. Is, is that is that true? That is absolutely true. Not everything in Wikipedia about me is true, but that is. <laughs> you have to be careful with these these with the social media, don't you? Yes, and what, why why do you take that stance then? Is it because you see them as? Um, sort of capitalistic and controlling the world in a certain way that doesn't benefit the, the, the majority of human beings, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite simple. I mean, but no. Capitalism is undisguised. I mean, it's naked exploitation of the majority of human beings. There's, you know, there's no need to sort of fidget around looking for... Uh, complicated definitions. Right. It's perfectly right. obvious what capitalism is doing. Maybe I should no, maybe I should say late capitalism, the way it has developed over the last, let's say, fifty years. Right. Well we've had the ability to make it a global phenomenon, you know, before it, it was yes. uh, sort of a nation thing, but now we have multinationals, we have uh you know, united uh, world organizations that, that can make a huge difference and sometimes for good, but oftentimes yes. not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So what would you what would you say to people who would say, well, anti-globalism is kind of going back to tribalism. And this is why we've got so many problems in the West right now, because people are fighting globalism, uh, you know, by wanting to go back to 
their own tribe, their their own special make America great again kind of mentality or make Britain great again or whatever it might be. Is the, how do you how do you how do you just talk about that? Well, I just think that is such a distortion, you know, to to think of it in those terms because, in fact, as you know, has been pointed out for the last sixty or seventy years. Uh, what we need to to do is to reduce our whatever population it is in, in a centre in a certain area to reduce it to the size and the complexity of something that is manageable without exploitation. I mean, I I think Cuba is a very good example. And I know, and you know, I've written quite a long book about Cuba, and I have pointed out that I personally would have found it difficult to live there because of the restriction on travel and um, on completely free speech. But that said, I mean, it is allowing for those defects. I mean, it is an extraordinarily fair society and an example of, if well, of, of a government that is not trying to make money, that is non-capitalist, really, really socialist. Right. That is doing the best for the for the greatest majority of the people, and you know that's. But that's why I put so much work into that book, because I really felt that if only people would go and see what can be done in a non-capitalist society. And remind me what, well, that's the, uh, what book was that, just so our listeners can know? Oh, gosh, I can't even remember now what the title was. Oh, The Island That Dared. Oh, right, The Island That Dared, yeah. Well, and now it's it's uh, you know moving towards a sort of a little different way of looking at things, isn't it? Of Since, course, yes. You know, so we'll see how it how it goes forward from from that, there. That's it. <clears throat> it won't be allowed to continue as it was under Fidel. Right, folks. I'm with Dervla Murphy, the author of Full Tilt, about her journey to from Ireland to India back in 1963. She's also written a, a, a large number of other books on travel and other subjects. It's an honor to have her on today's show. Uh, we're going to take a break now and to listen to these messages from Unity, and then we'll be right back to ask some more questions of this fascinating person. So join us in a couple of minutes. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. We now return to World Spirituality with Reverend Paul John Roach. All right, welcome back to today's show on World Spirituality. This is Paul John Roach, and I'm interviewing a fascinating person, Dervla Murphy. 
She's written a number of books on travel, but not only just travel like not travel like we might think of it today, the the luxurious kinds, but but uh, the old style travel. Uh, she went from Ireland to India on a bicycle, for instance. Has been on a mule in Ethiopia and other fascinating adventures. And uh, I read the book Full Tilt a little while ago about the journey to India. Was totally fascinated and correlated somewhat to my own journey uh, from Wales to India uh, 13 years later. But it had already changed dramatically. And and I'm fascinated to hear that um, Dervlin noted the beginning of the hippie trail when she went back to Turkey in in '68. Uh, it had just started up, and um, I think it already really lasted for about 20 years before the the revolutions in in Iran and then the um, the Russian intervention in Afghanistan sort of stopped it in its tracks, uh, to so to speak. Um, so it's a fascinating era. Um, but we're talking also about some of the other um, activities and involvements that uh, you've been in. In, in, engaged in Tervla. We mentioned, uh, you know, your visit to Cuba and, and uh, the adventure, or the experiment, I should say, that uh, the Cubans have conducted. You don't, yes. get a lot of good, don't get a lot of good press on that in America because uh, we, we have an antipathy to, to anything that's socialist, of course. But, exactly. Uh, that's why so, you're in such trouble, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you can't use the word socialism here in America without... I know. Sounding like it's, you know, ultimate communism. (laughs) But really, you know, when you look back on it, um, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, his New Deal was was a socialist program. Of course it was, yes. So you you, um, also have written a book um, called A Place Apart, um, and it won the Christopher Ewart Biggs Memorial Prize. And that, that was about the politics of Northern Ireland, right? And of course, Northern Ireland has experienced extreme difficulties, the troubles back in the 70s and 80s, late 60s. Uh, but before that, you know, there's been uh, internecine fighting for, for several centuries since the oh, settlement in, in the yep. 17th century. So what is your take on, on what's, what the, what's going on there and where we are now? Where we are exactly now in 2020. Yeah. Well, I think when it comes to Northern Ireland, we're we're definitely at a very, very interesting stage of development because the whole Brexit project is actually endangering the Good Friday Agreement which brought an end to the killing and bombing and shooting and whatnot in in 30 years of it in the North of Ireland. Um, So the Good Friday Agreement is now being threatened by developments resulting from Brexit. And... The main defenders at the moment of the Good Friday Agreement are in Washington because the Americans were their support uh, helped to bring about the Good Friday Agreement. And they are now very determined that Britain's leaving of the EU and its... um, 
its refusal to go along with the agreement reached, I think it was 11 months ago, between uh, Johnson, the British Prime Minister, and the then um, Irish Prime Minister, the agreement about the border that would exist between uh, the United Kingdom and the North of Ireland. That agreement has been ditched by, just, just last month, by the British. At least they've attempted to ditch it. But there were, you know, very vigorous protests from Washington. And the Irish-American lobby there made it plain that, and more than once, you know, at a very senior level, made it plain that if Britain persisted in this uh, disregard for the Good Friday Agreement, then there would be no profitable trade agreements between Britain and the United Kingdom on its exit from the um you know, from, from, from the European Union. Uh, its search for a good trade agreement with the United States would not, you know, it would not bear any fruit if they insisted on, on uh, ditching the Good Friday Agreement. So right. we're at a very, very interesting turning point, actually. And, it, you know, the next few months will tell us a lot actually. And I think, and also, of course, Scotland uh, has its own views about the exit, Britain's exit from the EU. So everything is, you know, it's it's there being, being stirred around. And I'm, 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 I'm hopeful, actually, that both the North of Ireland and Scotland will come to, you know, good, good for the their ordinary citizens, right. good solutions to these problems. But it's 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 a very very both interesting and, and, and dangerous time actually, because if things were to go wrong in the North of Ireland, they would go very wrong very quickly. I don't think they will, but they could. Right, I understand. Yeah, and it, it's too bad that we have these uh, struggles, you know, because based on religion, you know, as well, you know, between the Protestants oh, yeah. and the and the yeah. Catholics, and yeah, yeah. It's yeah, but really, the, in a way, the you know the religious element in the North of Ireland, though extremely important, but it it was actually more tribal than religious because I mean the the deeds done by the two sides who were given religious labels but I mean neither of them behaved like Christians right so and it's, we, it's, it's an oversimplification regardless. Uh, yeah few, really. both things, because right. land, land was at the very root of Right. As a, I mean, you know, so so many of the dispossessed peoples and their problems. Of course, it's to do with land. Couldn't be anything else. 
And I think we have the same difficulty in understanding uh, Islam today, you know, because, uh, again, o- oversimplifying the Quran and what it teaches. And, and That's right. uh, you know, people like ISIS, they don't really represent Islam, though people think they, they do, don't. you know. That's, they're not they're not Muslims because Muslims wouldn't That's do some of the horrific things that they do. Right? That's it. Yeah. So, so I mean, my last feel... my last two books were about the you know the Palestinian problem, right? As it's known, and uh, living in Gaza. Uh, well, part of that problem, of course, but I was. I was in Jordan then. I was halfway through a book when I had to chuck it up for health reasons. And I was staying there with in, the, in one of the huge Palestinian uh, settlements in Jordan when I, when I had to leave. But, I mean, that, that is a problem too that's, you know, even more... Uh, on the cusp now with the uh, you know the claim from uh, Trump and companies um, that they would back the the annexation of the West Bank and that has actually brought closer the fact that the end of that problem this the only solution to that problem is the one-state solution. But, I mean, it's such a complicated problem. And the, the process of arriving at the one-state solution, there are so many twists and turns. But it's it's very interesting, and it's not... Nothing is as it is presented in the mainstream media when it comes to Palestine-Israel. Right. You know, I mean... You've got to look elsewhere for your information, chiefly to the Israeli and Palestinian historians who have written about it and who are now analysing new moves because uh, otherwise, you know, you're just dependent on, well, propaganda from both sides. Right. But there are, there, I mean, there is this body of really, really reliable historians and anybody who's interested in that problem and they're all readable I mean they're not you know heavy oh when do we get to the end of this book not that sort really really um and lots lots of new books coming out on the one state solution so any of your listeners who have interest in that direction it's it's not hard to find these books, and it's it's the way it's the only way to understand the solution and and to forget the you know the anti-Semitic propaganda and the with the whole it's it's, a, it's all very tied in actually with what I was muttering about earlier the the capitalist system the globalization and the it's very much part of that right all, all these bits are all bits with jigsaw when you, when you take them apart whether you're talking about afghanistan 60 years ago or israel now 
they 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 all fit in. And people, just, I want to just got to learn how to read it. And I, I like what you're saying about educate yourself because. Uh, yeah. Nobody else is going to do it for you. show on a spiritual network and we we don't take political sides um and it's not about that our concern is for the welfare of the the world's humanity here and 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 every other sentient being on this planet um and we're not taking one side or the other that's not our, our role here we're, I know. We're, trying to, we're trying to elucidate what's um what's true from what's 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 false and so exactly. i just to put well, I just want to put that out for our listeners so that they don't think that we're in any way, um, you know, lifting up one side or the other. We're, we're just looking for clarity. And, Absolutely. and uh, I think that's important. Yeah. That's, so thank I know. I mean, that's that's my game, too. <laughs> yes. You're right. Yeah. So I, I, I'm fascinated to hear that in, in 2019, uh, you won the Royal uh, Geographical Society Ness Award. And... Um, the reason you won it, according to the, the Royal Geographical Society, was that you popularized a popularization of geography through travel literature. That's fascinating. I love that idea. Um, a popularization of geography. So, so tell me a little bit about your, your your own fascination with geography. You said earlier you love mountains. You like to be above eight thousand feet. You know that's that feels good for you. Um, why uh, geography has been one of my special interests. I'm very into a sense of place. Um, yes. Uh, yep. What is it about the geography that's so fascinating for you? Just be interested to know. I don't know. I mean, when it's when it's put like that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I spaced it incorrectly. <laughs> it doesn't. Uh... Doesn't make much sense, really, to put it like that. I mean, to put it the way the RGS put it is, you know, I couldn't. I, I'd actually forgotten about that until you reminded me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'll just share my, my point on my viewpoint on it. You know, to me, landscapes are almost, uh, you know, a living entity. There, there's something about them that is. Um, oh yes. Real and and they influence the people who live there and the animals, you know. So there's yeah. that that sense that they're they're not just a, a backdrop, right? A picturesque backdrop. And I think so many people these days see nature or the landscape or the the, the environment in general as just a a commodity to be That's used, you know. That's right. It's sort of picture, yes. Yeah, and and it's not that. It's it's something that we we uh, need to be stewards of, right? Well, I know, and I mean, I suppose that's why I feel so strongly about my own little tiny bit of Ireland, you know, and why I've never, never wanted or even for a moment considered living anywhere else in the world, even though I've seen so many other very beautiful and striking and fascinating places. But I've always wanted to come back to my own little corner of specifically West Waterford and I you could say West Waterford and East Cork and South Tipperary, that little stretch of Ireland, which really is, thank goodness, not over-touristed by now, not yet. I don't think it will be, actually. 
Uh, I think most most people know. Most people know Waterford because of the crystal, you know, the crystal factory or the glass factory that was there. Um, but probably not that about, you know, more. Not yeah, much I mean, that's that, just right? a tourist page. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But it is a very um, it's, it's a fairly gentle land, isn't it? There's lots of dairying and, and uh, farm, yes. And, and everything, actually, a little, a little, and it's so tiny, you know, when you're thinking of, thinking of the world. It's such a, uh, Ireland is such a teeny little island. You know, um, Ireland, you know, when I first went to Ireland years ago, um, I thought, where is this? You know, it seems a little bit like the UK, like, like Great Britain, but it yes. and it was the same when I went to Iran. I thought that. It was the first time I'd been outside of Europe. I was in Iran and uh, thought, where am I? It seems like maybe Eastern Europe or something, but it's not. We're in, obviously we're in Asia, um, but and the people seem Western somewhat, you know, yes. but, uh, yeah. but they're different. And I, it's interesting that, of course, Ireland's been influenced by Britain, you know, for many centuries, and yet it has, it has its own distinct... Uh, well, that's the extraordinary thing about landscapes, isn't it? And, and, and the ge- well, the geography, yeah. Right. And yes, and even though so many of the landscapes in Ireland you could find their equivalent in in Britain, the United Kingdom, and yet there's there's a different feeling, just a different spirit, I suppose. Right. I think you're right. Yeah. So when were you in Iran? Uh, that would be it, 76. Yeah, yes. 76. So spent a long time there in, in Tehran, Isfahan, uh, Shiraz, other places. So, uh-huh. yeah, fascinating. I, I, I consider Isfahan to be a, a, one of my favorite places in the world because it's, yes. it's, it's a remarkable city. On my way through Iran because I'm, you don't do many day tours on a bicycle. <laughs> That's right. Well, you went to Mashhad, which is another fascinating city. Oh, yes. It? Has famous uh, shrines and temples there, and in, in that, which is um, eastern, eastern part of Iran. If you, if anybody's fam- not familiar with it, um, sort of on your way to Afghanistan, right? Yeah, quite close to the border. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, what else would you like to share with our audience? That we haven't covered today, you know what? From your, your, uh, you're an elder now and uh, have a lot of wisdom. (laughs) What would you like like to impart to us? Well, I'm afraid. I'm afraid I don't have any wisdom to impart. I wish I did. (laughs) You're too modest. Well, no, no. I wish I did. But no, I suppose what I would like to impart is. You know, my real genuine faith in the younger generation, the youngest generation, to do quite a lot of rescuing of the planet. I mean, it's so far gone that they won't be able to rescue it completely. But I do believe that the young are onto something, that they will. The That wonderful young woman from... Uh, Norway, isn't it, or Sweden? What's her name? 
Yeah, Greta, Greta Thunberg. Greta, that's yeah. it. See, my, my memory for names is gone almost completely. But Greta, yes. I mean, she is an inspiration. And uh, I think she has had a real influence, not just a passing sort of media interest influence. I think she, she, she has had a considerable influence around the world of the because I think she was able to convey the sense that this really is the future is theirs it's not it's not something because their parents and grandparents have made such a mess and they've got to come along and clean it up it's not that they're going to you know inherit on previous generations might have thought they were entitled to inherit something better than their parents. And if they, they, they know they're left with a very, very nasty mess to be cleaned up. And it's, it's a challenge that I think a lot of them will rise to. And that's my, that's my main hope for, for the future. It it seems that you know when you're young you 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 don't you're not encumbered with all the uh, the complications of things right you you see to the heart of something and and when that's right yeah and when people speak that truth like she's doing you know it, it's yeah. it's refreshing for everybody but uh, it cuts through all the um, the compromising you know that we end up doing as we get older I think exactly yeah. <laughs> Well, I would I would say that you are one of those examples too. You know, when when you were younger, you you did things that most of us wouldn't consider doing, and 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 trailblazed in that regard too. So that's why we uh, have such great regard for for you and all that you've done. So um, you're another example of that for me. Well, you're you're very kind. Thank you, but. Um... No, I mean it. It has to be. It has to be taken seriously. Where we're Absolutely. at, and so many of, so many of the sort of middle generation, are apparently afraid to confront the challenge. You know, there seems to be, I think, climate denial, you know, all that stuff. But I think that's pretty well gone because, you know, the evidence is accumulating so rapidly that we are at the edge of disaster, that um, climate denial is it's just a freakish, you know, fringe thing now. Whereas it was quite, quite powerful a decade ago. But the, ev this, yeah. the evidence now has, you know, prevailed, actually. But in spite of that, too many people don't want to think of what's involved for them personally and their daily way of life. You know, they, they can't. I mean, the I think it was yesterday morning, maybe it was this morning, I heard a programme on the BBC about the Prince of Wales and David Attenborough and um, the Duke of Cambridge, the, the Prince's son, the three of them talking about some new project that's being set up, um, you know, to a great climate change um, sort of 
I don't know how, how they described it, but it, it sounded to me that it didn't make a whole lot of sense because they weren't really tackling the... Um, the fact that what, you know, if we're to do anything about climate change and what the young will have to set to is seriously changing the way we live, not talking right. about it, and not talking around the what might be possible, but determining what is unavoidable, because if we don't do it now, later, the next generation will have to do it, if we don't tackle it now, if we don't really change how we live, and how we think, and how we feel about other people. Right, absolutely. It just can't be business as usual anymore. Exactly. Yeah, that's where COVID may do a lot of good. Right, absolutely. You know, it has made a stop in our tracks and think, what's going on here? Folks, let me tell you about next week's show and then we'll say our final goodbyes to Derbler. This has been a very fascinating show and an honour for me to to have Derbler with us. Next week, I'll talk with inspirational speaker, life coach and author and host of the Everyday Peace Show on Unity Online Radio, Dr. Drayvon James will be with me. Um, but now I want to say a hearty and uh, thank you to Dervla Murphy for being my guest today. What a wonderful show. Um, I'm so honored that you could be with us. Well, thank you, Paul, for having me and listening to me rambling on for so long. <laughs> no, it's and quite good fascinating. Luck to everybody. And, and get that book, folks, Full Tilt. I think you'll find it a fascinating read. And we'll uh, talk to you next week. Take care now. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry, where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org.